Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What is faith? Is faith blind? Doesn't the Bible say that faith is a conviction of things not seen? Sounds blind to me. What is the relationship between faith and reason? Is there a difference between knowledge and certainty? Do atheists just lack a belief in God or do they have faith as well? We're going to see, ladies and gentlemen, on this broadcast that everyone has faith, dependent upon how you define it. Christians have faith, atheists have faith, and everyone in between. Now, before we get into that, I haven't mentioned this in a few weeks. I should have, but about a month ago when we were out in California for CIA, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, I got together with my friends at the Babylon Bee. For those of you that don't know the Babylon Bee, you need to know about it because not only are they brilliant and will provide you with comic relief, they will also comment on the issues of the day from religion to politics to ethics, and they'll do so in a fun way. And what we did is we sat down, myself, Kyle Mann, and Evan or Ethan Nicole are the two brains behind Babylon B. They have other writers as well. Uh, they're the Christian satire site, and we filmed a number of short little videos on many of their uh, their stories that they put out, and we, we sort of commented on them. And one of the things that I think is really important about their ministry, and it is a ministry, is that they can say things in a fun way that won't come across as well if you say things directly. And uh, that's what comedy does, comedy done well, and I think they do it very well. So if you go to our YouTube channel, you're going to see the past few weeks we've had uh, a Babylon B little video every week with me, Ethan, and Kyle uh, talking about one of their articles. And I just love some of their articles, some of, some of the classics that I remember them doing. One was, you know, harping on the modern church. One was... Holy Spirit unable to move after fog machine breaks. <laughs> That's just brilliant. It's slamming the modern sort of seeker church service with fog machines and all these pyrotechnics and that kind of thing, thinking that, well, you, 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 you get what they're doing here. They're, they're mocking it slightly and commenting on it at the same time. Now, if someone just came out and said, I think fog machines are stupid, they would... You know, it wouldn't come across as well as them saying, Holy Spirit, unable to move after fog machine breaks. Uh, when uh, Easter hit last year, right during the lockdown, here was their headline. Roman authorities investigating Jesus for violating stay in tomb order. <laughs> so they got the rock away from the tomb. And of course, Jesus is gone and they're, they're hunting him down. You know, that's the story. Uh, they had one a headline when when Governor Cuomo was the head of uh, the, the the governor of New York there, and he signed this sweeping pro-abortion bill where you could abort babies right up to the moment of birth. And here was the headline: 
Progressive announced progressives announced plan to resume lecturing you on morality after they're finished applauding murder of the unborn. That's now when they say it that way, it's a it is a slam, but you laugh at it because it's so absurd that people would be running around as the moral police on one hand, and yet on the other hand, they're ordering basically the murder or allowing the murder of nearly fully born babies. Uh, during the George Floyd situation in the Black Lives Matter movement, they had a headline that went, Atheists launched No Lives Matter movement, <laughs> which, of course, is true if you think about it. If atheism is true, no lives really do matter. But the way they write the headline and then the story, it's said in a better way than if someone just comes out and says, well, you know, since... There is no God, or if there is no God, as the atheists say, nothing really matters, no lives matter. It's much better to put it in a satirical headline and have a story surrounding it than to say that directly. So I highly recommend, by the way, you go to the Babylon Bee and avail yourselves every day of the headlines they put up. They probably put six or seven headlines up every day. And uh, of the eight headlines they put up every day, they probably go through a hundred that are submitted to them that they generate and other people send to them. So this is the best of the best. And I think they really do a good job and they're certainly worth supporting. I think they're a 501c3 if I'm not mistaken. So check out the babylonb.com. Also, I want to mention this Monday, I'm going to be at Marshall University, October 4th. I just had some great sessions at Colorado Mesa and North Carolina Wesleyan University the past couple of weeks. We're going to be out at Marshall University on October 4th and Truth for a New Generation Conference October 15th to 16th down in Myrtle Beach. And then on October 17th, I'll be speaking at First Baptist Myrtle Beach. And then University of Cincinnati, October 18th. Put all those on your calendar if you're anywhere near those places. Would love to see you. Now, let's talk about this issue of faith. What is faith and is faith really blind? And atheists often cite Hebrews 11.1 1 as a definition of blind faith. Here's what the passage says. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, unquote. Now, it really seems like that's saying, wow, you're, 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 you're believing in things you haven't seen. But if you read the context of the passage, it actually reveals that faith is not belief without evidence. Faith is trusting in God for an unseen future, based on the evidence of what is already known about God. That's why the rest of chapter 11 in Hebrews gives example after example of Old Testament characters trusting God through pain and suffering for promises that they did not see fully this side of eternity. Yet many of them had seen God work through miracles already, so they knew God could be trusted even when God was not working overtly at the time. You see, they had a past history with God. They knew who God was. God kept saying, remember, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. In fact, Moses is talked about right there in Hebrews chapter 11, a few verses after the passage that says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He talks about Moses and several other Old Testament characters. They didn't see the future, but they knew that they could trust God for the past. So in the Bible, faith is really, the word really means trust. That's what it means. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But let me stay with Hebrews 11 for a second. 
Many of these people, as I mentioned, had seen God work through miracles already, so they knew God could be trusted even when he wasn't working overtly at the time. Then the author of Hebrews urges us to exhibit that same kind of trust, that same kind of faith in God because of a fact of history. What's the fact of history? The resurrection. The writer of Hebrews writes, therefore, now we're in verse 12, or sorry, sorry, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what was the great cloud of witnesses? All the people he goes through in chapter 11, where he talks about all of these Old Testament characters, including Moses, including Isaiah, including Caleb. He goes, he names a whole number of people, Joshua, I believe, in that chapter. And he says, these people had faith, even though they didn't see the resurrection, they had other things that caused them or should have caused them to trust in God. They had seen that God had taken them out of Egypt and had brought them to the promised land. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So trusting in a trustworthy God who has proven himself through the resurrection is the very opposite of belief, with, belief without evidence, ladies and gentlemen. It is not blind faith. We've, we, we know the resurrection has occurred. We have evidence as it, it has occurred. As the writer of Hebrews is saying, trust in Christ because you know that's true. All right, I'm Frank Turek. You're listening. To, I, don't, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. The best pro-life course online is about to start. It's called The Ethics of Abortion, Pro-Life Apologetics in an Uncertain Age. Your instructor is going to be Scott Klusendorf, in my view, the best pro-life apologist in the country. You want to sign up by going to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and then on October 18th, the great Sean McDowell will be doing engaging LGBTQ conversations with compassion and clarity. So we're touching on two of the biggest cultural issues right now in the country, abortion and the same-sex LGBTQ issues. You're going to want to be a part of those courses. Check them out at crossexamine.org, online courses. Today we're talking about faith and is faith blind? And we pointed out before the break, no, faith is not blind. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. The Old Testament saints had seen God perform miracles, had seen God take them out of the slavery in Egypt to the promised land. They had seen God over and over again, confirming that he was the true God. And so they had evidence that God existed and they should therefore trust God as they move forward. And now we have not only that evidence, but we have the evidence of the resurrection. And so faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. And Jesus was an evidentialist. For example, in Luke chapter 7, it talks about John the Baptist being in prison and John starting to have some doubts now. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And so he sent some emissaries to Jesus. And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who has come 
or should we expect someone else? And what did Jesus say? He said, you go tell John to stop asking questions and just have faith. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? Well, here's what happened. Here's how Luke puts it. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, quote, this is what Jesus says back to the emissaries of of John the Baptist, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, unquote. So when Jesus is asked, are you the true Messiah? He doesn't tell John the Baptist just to have faith. He says, look at the signs. Look, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, leprosy, cured, deaf hear, dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. He's saying, look at the signs. Look at the evidence, in other words. And then in John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared to the disciples. The only one he hasn't appeared to yet is Thomas. And a week later, it says, beginning in verse 21, it says his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas knew he was dealing with, who he was dealing with. He was dealing with God at this point. He has, he has risen from the dead. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, some people will take that verse there and go, well, uh, yeah, Thomas saw, but we didn't see. So are we just supposed to have blind faith? No, you got to keep reading. Here's what the very next verse says. And this very next verse is really, when you look at it, the theme of the entire biography, what we call the Gospel of John. Here it is, verse 30, chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus said many other, or Jesus, sorry, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, meaning his biography, the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the testimony of John is evidence to the rest of people, the rest of the people who weren't eyewitnesses, so we could believe as well. That's why the book was written, so we would know the signs. We are eyewitnesses of his majesty, said Peter. John is basically saying the same thing. He's seen this. He knows that this is true. In fact, he says that in the next chapter. Here's what he says in the next chapter, Uh, John 21, verse 24. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And then he goes on to say, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Hyperbole there to point out the emphatic truth that Jesus did a lot of miracles that Jesus proved who he was, and they were eyewitnesses to it. 
Also, to show you what an evidentialist Jesus is, just go to the very first couple of verses of the chapter, or I should say of the book of Acts. Remember the book of Acts written by Luke, the book of the activities, you could call it. It's how the church began from Jesus ascending all the way to how it spread through the ancient Mediterranean world till about 62 AD, which is about the time Acts ends. And here's what Luke says in the very first chapter of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, what's the former book? Luke, the gospel of Luke. So now he's writing the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, that's to whom he wrote the gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus hanging around for 40 days after he's resurrected from the dead? Well, because he's given many convincing proofs. He wants to show people that, yes, he is the Messiah. And notice, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that the four problems we have as human beings are the same four problems Jesus solves through his many convincing proofs, his miracles. What are the four problems we have? Sin, natural disasters or nature, sickness, and ultimately death. Sin, nature, sickness, and death. If you look at the 35 or so miracles Jesus did while he was on earth, those are the four categories in which he does miracles. First of all, sin. He himself is sinless. He's the only person in history who has ever been sinless. Even his enemies couldn't convict him of sin. He said to his enemies, can any of you convict me of sin? No, none of them could. Now, any of us, if we were to ask any of one of our enemies or even any one of our friends, can you convict me of sin? They go, yep, I got a list a mile long of bad things you've done. And you know they're right. But Jesus is the only person in history who never sinned. So he's sinless. He's our sinless savior. He can take our punishment on himself because he doesn't take any of his own punishment on himself because he doesn't deserve any punishment. He's sinless. Secondly, he has power over nature, right? He calms the storm. He turns water into wine. He can overcome nature and nature can hurt us. But Jesus has power over nature. He also has power over sickness. He can heal the sick. And finally, he has power over death. He can raise the dead. Why is he doing miracles in those four categories? Because he is saying he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He can fix what's wrong with life by demonstrating that he has power in those four areas. He has power over sin. He has power over nature. He has power over sickness. He has power over death. And he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's what Acts 1 says. And then if you go to Acts 17, this is Paul before the Athenians. He's on Mars Hill, been there several times, right below the Parthenon there. And here's a part of the speech that Paul gives. It's, I think, abbreviated probably by Luke, but here's what he says. He's saying this to the Athenians who think 
that their god Athena is up there in on the Parthenon, up there in the temple. And here's what Paul boldly says. The man, or I'm sorry, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Gee, that's pretty bold of Paul, don't you think? He's standing in front of their temple and he says, <laughs> You're, the, the true God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. It's right behind him. It's, it's dominating uh, the, the background when Paul's giving this talk. He goes on to say, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives life to all men or he himself gives all men life and breath in everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Remember, the stone is right behind him, dominating the landscape. An image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, this word proof is the same word that is translated faith other places. About 233 places in the New Testament, it's translated faith. The 234th place, it's translated right here as proof because words have usage, not necessarily meanings. They have different meanings in the place you put them, in the context you put them, in the usage. For example, the word bark means something different if you're talking about a tree than if you're talking about a dog. Well, here the word in Greek, normally translated faith, is translated proof, that God has given proof that he exists by raising Jesus from the dead. So, God is a God of proof. Jesus is a Messiah of evidence. Jesus is an evidentialist. Faith is not blind. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. And when we come back, we're going to unpack this further and, and, and point out the distinction between belief that and belief in and also the distinction between faith and reason. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it. And we're back in two minutes. What is faith? Is it blind? The answer is no. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Now, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. And that's a key distinction we need to make. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is telling the truth. That is what we call apologetics in Christianity. It doesn't mean you're saying you're sorry, as you know. It comes from a Greek word, which means to defend, to give a defense like you would in a courtroom. That's what it means. So 
All the belief that in the world can help you intellectually understand whether or not something is true, but it will not compel you to believe in whatever the fact that you've discovered is true. For example, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called James, very good, says even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you know that the demons know that God exists better than we do? They're in the spiritual realm. They know he exists better than we know he exists, but they don't trust in him. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is merely of the head, whereas belief in is not only of the head, it's also of the heart. We know this in relationships. When I first met my wife 36 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is of the head, belief in is of the head and the heart, and no one can compel you to go from belief that to belief in. In fact, belief that sometimes is rejected because you don't want to go to belief in. I'll use an innocuous example. Some people are just afraid to fly. They're terrified of getting up in an airplane. Yet if you look at all the data, flying is absolutely the safest way to go anywhere. It's much safer to fly than to drive. That's what the stats show. But people don't want to believe that. And even if they do believe it, they can't compel themselves to go from belief that to belief in and actually get on the plane. Even though all the evidence is there, they may actually suppress that truth. They may say, no, I don't want to hear it. I want to drive. I feel like I'm in control. I don't feel like I'm in control in a plane. Well, you might not be in control, but it's still safer for you to be in the control of somebody else up in the air than you controlling yourself driving uh, along the roads, because you're not actually in control there either. There's other people out there that can hit you, right? So there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Now, when you go flying, you're not just believing that it's safe. You're trusting in the fact that it's safe. You're trusting that the pilots are well-trained because you have evidence they are. That ATC is going to get you to the next destination safely. That the plane is properly maintained because you know that there are rules and regulations and people have been flying planes for a century now. We figured out how to do it. So you have good evidence that it's safe, but you don't really trust in that evidence until you get on the plane. And by the way, it's not the amount of your faith that will save you, but the object of your faith. Let's suppose we're both going on a trip, and I'm terrified, but I'm going to fly anyway. I just muster up enough faith to get on the plane. Let's say you, on the other hand, you are completely comfortable. You're a world traveler. You, you fly all over the place. You love it, right? Now, is the amount of faith that you have going to get you to the destination and not get me to the destination because I only have a little bit of faith. No, we're both going to get to the destination if we have a good flight, regardless of how much faith we have. If I just have enough faith just to get on the plane and you have a lot more than me, we're still going to wind up in the same place. And the same thing, by the way, is true with salvation. 
You can have the faith of a mustard seed to be saved. And somebody else could, could have all the faith in the world. You're both saved. You're both going to get to the destination. Now, obviously, if you have more faith, perhaps maybe you'll do more works. Maybe God will use you to do more works. And so you'll be more rewarded in heaven. But you're both going to be in heaven. It's not the amount of faith you have, but the object of your faith. Jesus is the object of your faith. This is one of the reasons why the word faith movement is nonsense. Okay? <laughs> because it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. Not only that, but if you're not healthy and wealthy, it's not because you don't have enough faith. Why? Well, look, Jesus and the apostles weren't healthy and wealthy. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. They went to their deaths. They were persecuted and killed. And they had plenty of faith. So, again, it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. In fact, Tim Keller has a good illustration on this. Let's suppose you're, you're about to go off a cliff. You lose your footing. And as you're about to go over the cliff, you see a branch that you can reach out and grab onto. Now, you don't know if that branch is going to hold you up. But if you have a lot of faith, it will, or a little faith that it will, that's not going to matter. What's going to matter is how strong the branch is. If you reach out and grab it, thinking it will hold you up, it's going to hold you up or not hold you up, depending on the strength of the branch, not your faith. If you don't think it's going to hold you up, you don't have a lot of faith in it at all, but it's your last resort, you reach out and grab it anyway, and it's a strong branch, it's going to hold you up, regardless of your faith. So again, it's not the amount of faith. If you just have enough faith to reach out and grab the branch, if it's a strong branch, it's going to hold you, regardless of how much faith you have. It's the object of your faith that what is, is really what matters. Now, what about this issue of faith versus reason? Now, if faith means blind faith, and it doesn't in the scriptures, but if it means blind faith, then faith and reason do seem opposed. But if faith means trusting in what you have good evidence to believe, then faith and reason work together. Reason simply gets you to a point where you can exercise trust. Reason just helps you with belief that. Then it's your own decision as to whether or not you're going to go from belief that to belief in to go from belief that to trust in. Reason deals with belief that, and trust deals with belief in. Also, if you think about this, the opposite of faith is not reason. The opposite of faith is a lack of trust. Just like the opposite of, of reason is not faith. The opposite of reason is not faith, it's irrationality. Now, it is true that if you believe that your faith is blind and that you're going to believe something even though it's irrational, then, okay, yeah, then you're being irrational there. That kind of faith is irrational, but that's not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. Jesus and the, and the, the, the apostles, they all talk about getting evidence for your faith, getting evidence for your trust. You say, well, Frank, if you're saying that faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe, then why did you write a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist? Because in that context... The word faith there seems to mean blind faith. And you're right. That's what the title does mean because we're trading on we're trading on the cultural definition of faith there. The cultural definition is if you don't have evidence, you just have faith. It's blind. And what we're saying is if you use that cultural definition, 
It's the atheists that are really blind because there's so much evidence pointing toward Christianity, and yet they seem to be suppressing that or ignoring it, and they're trying to manufacture reasons to believe there is no God. So if you read the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we're trading on this blind faith concept, even though we don't really think that's the biblical definition of faith. And you say, wait a minute, Frank, what about this idea that atheists lack a belief in God? Is that really true? Well, it's not true for a number of reasons. Number one, um, atheists actually have positive beliefs about the way they think the world is. For example, they think maybe the world got here by a quantum vacuum or say that macroevolution is true or that multiple universes exist. That's their explanation for fine tuning or that materialism is true. These are all positive beliefs that they would need evidence for. Okay, it's not just that they lack a belief in God. They're trying to explain reality by these other explanations other than a God who created an orderly world. So they're trying to somehow avert or avoid the conclusion that God is the cause of these effects. And they're saying the quantum vacuum is the effect or the cause of the effect or macroevolution is or multiple universes are or materialism is whatever. Also, if you think about this. If someone, if I were to say I lack a belief, let's say I lack a belief in materialism, am I really saying anything about whether or not materialism is true? No, I'm just telling you something about my psychological state. I'm not really saying anything about materialism, not really saying anything about the real world. The same thing is true when atheists say I lack a belief in God. They're not really saying anything about whether or not God really exists out there. What they're really saying is, my psychological state is, is that I lack a belief in God. Well, okay, that's in your head. That's your psychology. That's not telling me anything about what's outside of your head. And that's the question we're interested in. Is there really a God who created and sustains the world? Just because your psychology lacks a belief in God doesn't tell me anything about whether or not that being really exists. In fact, if you really want to cut through all of the labels here, with an atheist who says, I just lack a belief in God, simply ask this question. All right, okay, here's the proposition. God exists. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Or are you unsure? If they say, I agree with that, then they're a theist. If they say they disagree with the proposition God exists, they're an atheist. If they say, I don't know, I'm unsure, they're an agnostic. Okay, those are the only three things you can be talking about the existence of God. A theistic God. You either believe he exists, in that case you're a theist, you say he doesn't exist, in that case you're an atheist, or you're saying, I don't know, you're an agnostic. But to come through and try and talk about, I lack a belief in this and I lack a belief in that, really what's going on here is the atheists are just trying to avoid the burden of proof. But in fact, atheists believe in things about the universe, and they're trying to explain why reality is the way it is, and they need evidence just like everybody else. In fact, everyone believes in something unbelievable, especially atheists. And when we come back from the break, we're going to see several things that atheists believe that requires faith. Blind faith, I think, because this kind of thing has never been observed. The kind of things they believe in requires blind faith, not the kind of faith that Christians are talking about to trust in when you have good evidence to believe, but they're trusting in things that have never been seen, have never been demonstrated, 
And they're, in my view, they have no evidence for it. That's blind faith. All right, we're back in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Turek with you on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist radio broadcast and podcast. And uh, please, if you would, put a positive review up there wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple or wherever you go. It helps it move up the charts, the podcast that is, and tell other people about it if you would. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Now, before the break, we were talking about how everyone believes in something unbelievable, especially atheists. Do you know that atheists have faith because most of them will admit the universe was created, but they want to say it was created without a creator, that somehow it came into existence either out of nothing or or some other way that has never been seen, never been demonstrated. We realize that every effect must have a cause and the universe appears to be an effect and space, time, and matter literally had a beginning. What could be the cause? It's got to be a spaceless timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, as we've talked about several times on this program. But many atheists will say, well, it came into existence, and we just don't know how it came into existence, but it came into existence somehow, but we're not going to go to God. And one day we're going to figure out a way that the universe could be created without God. Well, you know what that is? That's faith. (laughs) That's faith, because it hasn't been demonstrated that a universe could come into existence without a cause, or that there's something other than than a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent being that brought the universe into existence. I mean, that's, that's what seems to be the best explanation at this point to say, no, I want to look for something else. That's a faith position when you have a perfectly reasonable explanation. They also trust that a precisely fine-tuned universe came into existence by chance. And we've covered the fine-tuning on this program many times. You change any one of a number of factors about our universe, virtually imperceptibly, none of us are here. Even the atheist Stephen Hawking said, if the expansion rate of the universe were different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. Now, you can't make any sort of evolutionary explanation for that value. Why? Because that's one of the initial conditions of the universe. The universe started that way. Seems to me the same being that created space, matter, and time is the same being that fine-tuned the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be. If it were any different, the universe would not be here. We wouldn't be here. So it seems to me they're the ones with all the faith. And when they when they punt to a multiverse, which no one has ever seen, and no one there's no evidence for, it's pure speculation, and it doesn't get them out of the problem because you still have to have an absolute beginning, even if there are other universes out there, and those universes would still need to be created by some sort of universe generator itself. They're not getting rid of the need for a cause by coming up with that. And nobody would be positing multiple universes if this universe didn't appear to be so designed, so fine-tuned. Also, they believe that life came from non-life without intelligence. That has never been demonstrated anywhere, but they have to believe that if they're atheists. That's a faith position. They also want to believe that complex life forms came from an unguided process. 
That's a faith position too. It's never been demonstrated. And as we've pointed out several times, we've had Stephen Meyer on this program several times, Doug Axe, others that point out there are too many problems with the macroevolutionary viewpoint. In fact, even, even Darwinians, Darwinian evolutionists, neo-Darwinian evolutionists are admitting this now. That's why they had this big Royal Society meeting out in London in 2016, because they said, look, the, the idea that we're going to get new life forms from mutating DNA and, and natural selection just doesn't work. We need a new naturalistic theory. They didn't come up with one, but they realized that it takes a lot of faith to believe in that theory because there's so many, there's so many arguments against it. There's so many, there's so many inconceivable things, inconceivable, monumental things to overcome, like irreducible complexity and epigenetic information and genetic limits, that it doesn't seem plausible that complex life forms could arise by an unguided process. They also believe that rationality came from irrationality, that moral laws came without a moral lawgiver, if they're going to say that moral laws are objective. If they're not going to say moral laws are objective, then they're basically, they're basically disbelieving in their most their most, uh, how do I put this? It's more certain that torturing babies for fun is wrong than atheism is true. Let me put it that way. And that comes from an atheist, Louise Anthony. You, your, your deepest moral intuitions are that murder and torturing babies for fun is wrong. It's, it's much, much more sure. You're much more sure about that than you are that atheism is true. Well, the only way it's really wrong to torture babies for fun or to murder people or to rape or whatever is if God exists. Yet, you're going to take a faith position that those things aren't wrong in order to say that atheism is true? Also, if you're an atheist, you have to believe that devout Jews invented Jesus and then suffered and died for their own invented lie. That doesn't seem plausible. Not at all. Also, if you're an atheist, you have to believe that every miracle claim and spiritual experience in the history of the world has to be false. Did you hear what I just said there? Think about that. Every miracle claim and spiritual experience in the history of the world has to be false or mistaken for atheism to be true. Is that possible? Yeah, that's possible. Is it reasonable? I don't think so. No, you got to have a lot of blind faith to believe that, to overlook all the testimony of the miraculous, all the testimony of spiritual experiences. In fact, thinking itself is a spiritual experience because it cannot be completely explained by molecules in motion. And if thinking could be explained by molecules in motion, you shouldn't think or you shouldn't believe anything you think because you're not really thinking. It's the physics doing all the work. Yeah, the... The, the, the very process of thinking that you as an atheist are going through has a spiritual element to it, meaning a non-material element to it. If it doesn't have a non-material element to it, then why should you believe anything you think? But the very reason you can believe what you think should give you a clue that my ability to think should be explained by something what is it explained by? Why can I think as an atheist? It's not explained by molecules in motion. Because again, just molecules bumping around are not going to help you 
explain why you can think. And as we talked about, ladies and gentlemen, on a podcast maybe two months ago where we talked about the scientific way to show that God exists, if someone were to ask you, uh, how do you know God exists? What you want to say is, I know God exists by his effects because you're reasoning from effect to cause. For example, if there's a creation, you're reasoning from a, crea- from a creation, that's the effect, back to a cause, a creator. If there's a design, you're reasoning from the effect known as design back to a cause, a designer. If there's a moral law written on your heart, you're reasoning back from that effect to a cause, a moral law giver. If you experience rationality and the ability to think, that's the effect. You're reasoning back to a mind that set this universe up and has given you the capacity to think, has set up an orderly universe, and has made your mind in the image of the great mind, his own. In other words, the very effect that you have that enables you to think should cause you to reason from that effect back to a cause, and that cause is best explained by a mind, and that's what we mean by God. So, when you're thinking, you're actually, you're actually doing something that God has given you the ability to do. In fact, he's given you the ability to do everything that you do, the free will that you have requires a spiritual element. Again, if you're just molecules in motion, you wouldn't have free will. This is why even atheists who will say, we just have to act as if we have free will, even though we don't. Well, if we don't have free will, how do you know we don't have free will? How did you come to that conclusion? By molecules bumping around in your head? No, that's not going to give you, that's not going to give you a valid conclusion. The only valid conclusion you can come to and know it's valid No, it's true, is if you have the ability to think otherwise, if you have the ability to conclude otherwise, if you're not driven completely by the laws of physics. So it seems to me the atheists have all the faith if we're talking about blind faith here. Everybody has faith. And by the way, not everybody can, or let me say this another way. There's a difference between knowledge and certainty. No one has absolute certainty on all things. Only God does. Yes, absolute truth absolute truth exists, but we don't always grasp it absolutely. We may be able to grasp some truths absolutely, like two plus two equals four, right? We can grasp those absolutely, but can we grasp absolutely that our complete worldview is true? No, we can know it's true without being certain it's true. There's a difference between knowledge and certainty. I mean, you're, you, you might be ready to get in your car. You know that your car is probably well built, but you don't, you're not certain it's not going to break down on the trip you're about to go on. You're not certain that you're going to get to where you're going. You have knowledge, you have good evidence to believe that you will get where you're going, and you have enough knowledge to trust in the fact that you're going to get in the car or get on the plane or whatever, but you're not certain you're going to get there. Is it possible that somebody planted a bomb in your car? Yeah, that's possible. Is it possible the pilots are going to fly the plane into the ground on purpose? It happened several years ago. A jihadist did that over there in Europe. It's possible. Is it likely? No. So there's a difference between knowledge and certainty. None of us have complete certainty from an intellectual perspective to know that our worldview is completely true. Maybe we have beyond a reasonable doubt, but you don't need complete certainty to live life. You just need 
knowledge beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the kind of knowledge that we have. Now, there's a lot more that could be said. I had more I wanted to say from C.S. Lewis on faith from mere Christianity, but we'll have to get that to, uh, we'll have to get to that another time. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget about the two courses coming up: pro-life course and engaging LGBTQ conversations with compassion and clarity. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and don't forget Marshall University this Monday night. I hope to see you there. God bless.